You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Pope. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Community Church, and Brad made the mistake about a month and a half ago of asking me to preach. So today you get me. Happy Father's Day, gentlemen. It's kind of a tradition on Mother's Day to be lifting mothers up from the pulpit, and on Father's Day to be beating fathers down. But uh, today I'm not going to do that. I'll be beating us all down, so to speak, <laughs> myself included. But I'll try and be as gentle as I can. It actually should be uplifting. We'll see. Did you ever think you'd hear the words beat down from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, actually? I think if this doesn't go well, you might witness one of the elders tackle me at the end of the service. It was the summer of 1978, and I was on a camping trip with my scout troop that I lovingly remember as the armpit of our fair state in North Carolina. It was hot and humid, and it rained most days, but that was okay as we had canvas tents that kept us moist. I mean, (laughs) dry, well, mostly. You see, if you touch a canvas tent when it's raining, water starts to drip, and I learned that the hard way. Didn't know that that's how it worked. And because of the rain, we had swarms of mosquitoes to keep us occupied. Uh, Defensing yourself from mosquitoes can be quite good exercise for a sedentary Boy Scout, as I was back in the day. And so that kept us busy. Also, due to the rain, because we were in canvas tents, we had to pull all of our gear up onto our cots to pad the bedding, as it were. You'll never forget that first time you sleep on a shovel. (laughs) The cots themselves smelled best, as I can describe like roasted onions with a hint of garlic. Yeah. I don't think those cots ever got washed, but they were very durable, so I'm certain that they're still being used today. (laughs) Then there was the nightlife. Ever been on a snipe hunt, I was asked, by an eager Boy Scout? Not wanting to seem a newbie, of course I've been on a snipe hunt. I've, I've been a time or two. I didn't want to squash his enthusiasm with the invitation. Besides, I'm a quick study. I knew I'd catch at least one. So that night, we were to go out on a snipe hunt. Now, for the uninitiated, a snipe hunt is where you go out with some buddies deep, deep into the woods late at night with your flashlight and a canvas potato sack. And your buddies leave you with the sack in the woods to do the snipe call. Well, you have to take the snipes. And, uh, let, me, let me back up a little bit. Snipes are afraid of light sources. So it's important that you're in the dark when you're snipe hunting. And if you look it up in the dictionary, there is actually such a bird as a snipe. So I was eager to catch one. My buddies assured me this would take care of it. We'd catch a couple snipes that night, and everybody would be kind of enjoying themselves, as it were. So I was instructed, once we got deep into the woods, we're past any discernible landmarks, no sources of light anywhere. You couldn't even barely see the sky at night because it had been raining so much. It was wet, moist. There was nothing, nothing lighting us up. I was instructed to sit with my potato sack and wait for about five minutes. But in order to get the snipes to come in my direction, I was instructed in snipe calling. And the snipe call sounds a lot like a sick crow. I didn't know this, but before they left me in the woods to catch my snipe, I was instructed to practice the snipe call, which I did with great enthusiasm. And my buddies... They seemed overly, overly enthusiastic and overjoyed with my snipe call. So I thought, 
hey, I'm in the clear with this ruse. They'll never know. I've never been. So my buddies instructed me, hold the bag. The snipes will come running when I start calling. But to ensure that they'd come my way, my buddy was going to be using my flashlight. Remember, snipes don't like light, and they'd be chasing them in my direction. So after a few, possibly five or, you know, it seemed like 100 mosquito bites or so, I knew it had to have been five minutes. I'm sitting there with my bag. I begin my snipe call robustly. I won't tell you how long it took to dawn, but somewhere after those five minutes, it began to dawn on me. My buddy wasn't coming back. I won't tell you how long. Just know that it did dawn on me. That's good enough for you. To make matters worse, I was so deep in the woods, I could only make out one light source far, far off in the distance. I just hoped it was camp, and as it turned out, it was. So after a little while, I dragged myself out of the woods, back to camp, and made the way through the rest of my week. A little bit wiser, a little bit smarter. I was not pleased in the least with my snipe hunt. And so at the end of my week, when I got home, I wrote a scathing review on Yelp. Just kidding. Yelp didn't exist back then. Neither did the internet, actually. <laughs> I was too trusting and with the wrong people, but I learned a valuable life lesson. I would never go snipe hunting again, but that was okay. Today we'll see that Judah has similar experience, but on a much grander scale. So picture this. Your king Hezekiah. You've just come from the nation of Egypt to make an alliance. They're going to help you defeat an army that encamped just outside your kingdom's gates. However, that alliance has fallen through, and the Egyptians are not coming to the rescue. So what's next? I've got it, you say. We'll buy them off. If we can pay them, maybe they'll go home and leave us alone. So you melt down the gold and the silver in the temple to create tribute to pay to, pay to Sennacherib in order to attempt to appease him and hopefully convince him and his army to return to Assyria and leave you alone. With eagerness, he accepts your tribute, but soon reality begins to sink in. He and the Assyrians aren't going anywhere. They're preparing for a siege. Your city is to be plundered and destroyed. You're just the next nation in the Assyrians' long line of conquests. You're doomed. You've tried everything to avoid this outcome. What else is left but to go to God? This is where we find the nation of Judah. At last, they're coming back to God. However, it's not with the anticipation that he is their foundation and source of all blessings. It's only that God is their last hope. They don't see it, but Isaiah is telling them here in chapter 33 that the love of their God is unceasing and boundless. As is our custom, we normally stand for the reading of Scripture, but since this is such a long passage today, we will stay seated. Well, you will stay seated. So from Isaiah 33, we read, Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourselves up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locust leap is leapt upon, 
The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. As a sideline from this, to kind of give you an, a piece of, or a picture of what Isaiah is saying here, Sharon, Bashan, and Carmel are the northern territories in Isaiah's time for Judah. It would be like saying, D.C., Boston, and New York are ghost towns, is what Isaiah is telling them. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime. Their thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has ceased the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who, walks upright, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions and shakes his hands, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from, looking of, or for hearing, from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks, his bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that in our time, and in your time, Isaiah 33 speaks to us as it did the people in the nation of Judah. We ask that your word come alive to us and that the study in your scriptures this morning speak to us in our situations here on earth today. Help us to not see your story as a thing that took place, but as a thing that is taking place in our lives daily as we go our ways 
as we encounter others, help us to be useful to you. Help us to trust you, to recognize our brokenness, and to seek your renewal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, from Isaiah 33, I hope of a far country, we see that trust is a must. If you look throughout Isaiah as we've been studying, five times previously and now in chapter 33, the sixth time we see Isaiah use the words ah or woe, but this time is different. In the first five opportunities, 28, 29, and 30, and 31, Isaiah has used this word woe in direct um, I guess, in direction toward the nation of Judah. He's basically telling them they have been going astray. They're moving far away from God. This time in chapter 33, God is using Isaiah to point his awe or woe toward the nation of Assyria. And why is God now addressing the Assyrians, you may ask? Well, now God's children are entering into repentance. It's a sort of confusing coming to God in that they are not exactly willing participants. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore the love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? That is us, and that is the nation of Judah. They aren't returning to God because he is their understanding that he is the source from whom all wit from which all blessings flow, but because they now have no other options. Have you ever seen a child loving a cat that would rather not be loved? It's adorable and scary all at the same time. The child isn't letting go, and the cat's not going to continue, it's not going to stop struggling to break free. The cat's Judah, and the cat is us. We, could, we can and should take comfort in knowing that God's love for his children is relentless. That was always God's design. In a previous service, one of our elders, Jim McLaughlin, made a comment that I thought was quite eloquent. He said that we are the kings and queens of making a plan B. By contrast, God doesn't make a plan B. He doesn't need one. The nation of Judah has made many plan Bs to avoid this circumstance, C through Z and then back around through AA and keeps on going. And all they've done is failed. They have ultimately come to the recognition that unless the Lord intercedes, they are doomed. And we see also this from the New Testament as well. In Mark 4, on that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was, in, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I think that's an interesting eyewitness account. They only had one cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples were goners for certain. They knew it. You may disagree, but the disciples were just like us. They had just seen him feed thousands 
in, in, grassy, in a grassy place. They had just seen a, a miraculous thing, and yet now they're worried with Jesus with them that they're going to die. They're screaming, hey, Jesus, we're dying up here. Thought you'd like to know. They knew he could do something, or at least they thought he could, but they literally had no idea what. Nonetheless, Jesus does do something. He raises himself up, just as God raises himself up, as we see here in Isaiah. And then God accomplishes exactly what he means to. The verbs in Isaiah 33, verse 3, flee and scattered are perfect tense. They express a secure outcome. God cannot and will not fail. Ray Ortland reminds us, when we truly trust God, lo and behold, we find him. He's there. When God is all we have, we find that God is all we need. Have you ever been to that place? That place where you recognize you can't fix it? You can't get out of it. You can't run from it. At that point, what we really need is to go to God and ask for his grace to face our issue. He will meet you there. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. You may recognize this phrase from 1835, the hymnist Charlotte Elliott penned these words that had been used or has been used for quite some time in the Billy Graham Crusades that we approach God. That said, however, and this is truly a sad commentary, even in our coming, we come reluctantly. So if trust is a must, brokenness is our fault. Or for the note takers, I changed it this morning, brokenness is our nature. Sorry about that. It's a wonder to many Christians why God will permit us to flounder as much as he does before he acts. Judah had tried everything to avoid their situation, just as we take every precaution to avoid issues in our lives. This is how it's always been. So from Mark 5, we see another situation. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Sorry, I sound like Peter Brady there. <clears throat> and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman was unclean and breaking the law to mingle in the crowd she did it in order to get close to Jesus. She had tried everything else, but she was desperate. Then after having been healed, she felt many things. Awe, fear, reverence, to name a few. But what did Jesus do? 
He asked, who touched me? Her response was to fall before him. She confessed what she had done, and his response was to what? To accuse her for approaching him in an unclean state without announcing herself? That's what they would have had to do in the day. You'd have to stand off in a bar and yell unclean so that people who were not unclean wouldn't get too close to you. But that's not what Jesus did. He lovingly called her daughter. She was now a part of the family of God as declared by God. A tremendous gift we have in our salvation as well. The Greek sozo or healed that you see in verse 29 of this passage can mean both heal and save. In other words, she was both healed of her infirmity and she was saved by God. She was broken and placed her hope, her faith in God. Although she had tried unsuccessfully for years to solve her own issues, when she finally went to God, he did not disappoint. He can use our brokenness for his glory as well. So back to Isaiah 33. In verse 10 we read, Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Now you've done it, Assyria. God is about to act on his children's behalf. Even though they come reluctantly, that won't stop God. But why now? In Psalm 51, the psalmist tells us, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Their hearts are now beginning to lean toward God as well. God's people have returned to him and are now resting in his grace to save them. As you see in verse 2 of chapter 33 of Isaiah, O Lord, we wait for you. It's the beginning of their prayer. The nation of Judah, they are seeing their ways are unsuccessful and that God is their only hope. This may sound familiar to you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. This melodious theology is so simple, and yet it is tremendous. We are not born with an innate desire for God or even an understanding of God's love. We aren't even born with a desire to do anything but please ourselves. We want what we want when we want it. Scripture, however, and this chapter specifically, tells us that the story of God's pursuit of his children over time. God's story is a long timeline of his actions on our behalf. In the gospel, we see creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And as Christians, you see this in your life, sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes on a weekly basis, sometimes it's longer. But as Christians, we see this cycle as well. Our nature is to be broken, but that was not God's original design. Back in Genesis chapter 1, we see in verses 27 and 31, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. We see that what God made in chapter 1 of Genesis was all pronounced good, and then emphatically, God pronounces everything very good. 
or actually, I want to say it's in the Greek. I didn't look this up, so maybe I shouldn't say it at all, but it's actually repeated. Good, good, meaning very good. Have you ever stopped to think about the garden? It was heaven on earth, and man communed with God. When we see the miracles contained in Scripture, both in the Old and in the New Testaments, maybe, just maybe, God is presenting us with a glimpse of how heaven is and how earth was meant to be. No illness, no want, no famine, no sorrow, no strife, no discord, and no death. The disciples even saw Jesus' miracles firsthand, and many miracles were unnoticed. Remember the, unlo- the, the loaves of bread right before their boat is sinking and they're freaking out? Some of those miracles were forgotten or not even understood. But we can't really fault them for that, as we too have an incredible gift for being dim and forgetful when it comes to watching God act in our circumstances. In fact, I bet some here today have a tremendous capacity to forget some things right on the spot. I myself don't have that problem. But, hey, quit looking at Benita. In seriousness, however, our blindness and forgetfulness is God's opportunity can use these moments to show his mercy and grace. And in so doing, he's glorified by saving and healing us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 9, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus knows we are broken, and he, as our great physician, he is the one who calls to make an appointment to heal us. So even though we feel at times it's important for us to go to God, God is already acting in our circumstance, even when we don't see it. He is busy 100% of the time when we have forgotten to go to him in prayer, when we have forgotten to read about him in in the word. There are many times when God is acting and we just don't know it. As our great physician, he provides the care that is precisely what we need and at precisely the right time. So if trust is a must and brokenness is our nature, our renewal is his pleasure. God wants us to see him. And in the process of seeing him, he wants us to see ourselves as we truly are. Judah has just experienced a double cross, and now God is displaying his intentions regarding the salvation of his people. Again, we go back to Ray Ortland, who says it like this, Part of renewal is God wounding our consciousness, but also healing us with forgiveness. Therefore, in order to see God as clearly as we can, or as he will permit us, we must see ourselves as we truly are. Again, we go back to Mark. In chapter 10, we read, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to... to, hmm, Let me try that again. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. 
and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This instance that we see in Mark, as far as I can discover, and I've looked for other pastors to, or commentaries to draw insight on this, is the only occurrence in all of the gospel accounts that displayed one who approached Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, and then being shown themselves, went away sad. Our culture has a strong hold on comparison and justification. We're not as bad as that guy down the street, of course. And surely God will accept me as I am because I'm living a good life and I'm, I'm doing good things, right? However, we just saw the scriptures tell us, in fact, Jesus tells us, there is no one good but God. The young ruler knew that. Everyone in that culture and at that time knew that. In verse 17, the young ruler calls Jesus good teacher. No one called a rabbi good teacher. They all knew God alone was good. So after this exchange, Jesus questions the man about the good comment and the commandments. And he focuses in on the good comment. The young man quickly rearranges his address to Jesus and then later on says, teacher. So he corrects himself. He recognized that he thought he was not addressing God. So he took the good part off. He's a quick study, except he was wrong. He, like we, want to justify our deeds. We do, excuse me, what we do and how we do it is good enough, right? No, we are not, but God is always good. In the end, when we come to God, he is always there. He is ready to provide you as his child with healing and salvation in the midst of your Assyria, whatever that may be in your life. So near the end of Isaiah 33, in the last few verses, or some of the last few verses, we'll read, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Here Isaiah paints a portrait for us and for Judah of what they can expect to behold. We have to use our imaginations to some degree in what we envision heaven will be like when all of our issues and burdens will cease. Over the years, over centuries actually, artists have attempted to convey their visions, but we are best envisioning heaven through the lens of scripture. In the end, all Christians will be, as Ortland puts it here, the church will be transformed into gladly, solidly, God-trusting people who can face anything with him as their savior. When we go back to Isaiah 33, in the last two verses, we see a picture of ourselves, specifically the first verse, 23. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mass firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. 
We're not capable, is what Isaiah is telling them, is what he's telling us. God intends for us to notice that we, like they, like Judah, are nothing more than a floating hulk. We're adrift or without direction. Even in our best efforts, we cannot point ourselves to God. We desperately need Him to renew us and in every way. In our most troubled times, as well as at the end of our lives here on earth, He is our refuge and our hope. With our, with our Assyria looming large in our lives, we can trust that it doesn't end this way. I didn't think it would end this way. End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path. One that we almost take. The grey rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What? And health. See what? White shores. And beyond. A far green country. And a swift sunrise. We too have an assurance of a far green country, even though we still will probably have to face our Assyrian issues in this life. Just in the story you just watched, Pippin still must face battle after the picture he's just been given of heaven and where he will go. Over 2,000 years ago, God humbled himself as a man and came to earth to live a life we can't and to die the death we deserve. In so doing, he has borne away our sins and they are gone forever, never to return. Once we see God in that light, then we can truly see ourselves. And like the woman who approached Jesus, we will stand in awe of the gracious gift of grace and mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ. Not that we could ever do anything to earn his favor. When we begin to understand this overwhelming love he has for us, we should trust him in our circumstance. And in trusting him, we will see our brokenness and the gift we have in his salvation. In salvation, we will have our eyes open to his continual or continuing renewal of our lives. Sanctification is truly a gift from God. And he will grow us in spiritual maturity, as painful as that can be at times. Isaiah 33 carries a great message for us today, as it did for Judah then. Please understand, this makes certainly more sense if you are one of his children. Therefore, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, or if you haven't trusted him to overcome your brokenness and bring you renewal, I would urge you to go to him now in prayer. He is there. Also, the elders will be glad to meet with you or to speak with you and pray with you or answer any questions you may have as we go our way this afternoon. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your prophet Isaiah who has shown Judah and through doing, through doing so has shown us that we have a hope in you, in a place to be with you in heaven. You have made a way for us. In the Trinity, you sent your son that we may be with you forever as your children. And we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We recognize that even our best efforts are filthy rags. No matter what we do, our plan B's always fail. Help us to recognize that we can trust you. Help us to see you act in our lives on a daily basis. Open our eyes to what you are doing, to what you have done, and help us to rest in that trust feel relief from our brokenness. We ask that you renew us daily. Give us joy as we approach your throne in prayer, in the reading of your word, in the gathering together of your saints. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.